Many years ago, Dr. Purnell Bailey wrote a religious column for the uh, Goldsboro News Argus. It's a newspaper magazine in uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina. And here's what he once wrote uh, in his column. He said, I once visited an orange grove where an irrigation pump had broken down. The season was unusually dry and some of the trees were beginning to die for lack of water. The man giving the tour then took me to his own orchard where irrigation was used sparingly. These trees could go without rain for another two weeks, he said. When asked to explain why, he replied, when these trees were young, I frequently kept water from them. And this hardship caused them to send their roots deeper into the soil in search of moisture. Now mine are the deepest rooted trees in the area. And while others are being scorched by the sun, mine are finding moisture at a greater depth. Just like these trees, we are to be deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, which is a way of describing our spiritual connection with Him. For the Christian, deep, strong roots are a necessity to tap into our source of of nourishment for spiritual growth and fruitfulness. Deep, strong roots are essential in experiencing a full and meaningful life and fulfilling the work that God has called us to do. And deep, strong roots serve as anchors. They serve as anchors to weather the tough seasons of life that will come our way. Deep, strong roots help us to hold on to Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Being deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. Now before we get going, I need to remind you of some background. If you remember, the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Colossae. A church he did not know. 
a church he had never visited. At the time of this letter, the church was about five years old. They were a young congregation. And to their credit, they were described as being faithful and loving. They seemed to be healthy and thriving. But false teachers had slithered into the region and were trying to wiggle their way into the church. These false teachers were presenting a different Jesus and a different gospel. It was a twisted version of Christianity and Judaism and other Eastern philosophies. And there was a real concern this young church could become confused and potentially lose their way. Well, this prompted Epaphras. Remember that name? Epaphras. A leader in the church to travel 1,000 miles one way to visit Paul in Rome and to explain his concerns about the church. And what Paul learned from Epaphras inspired this letter to the Colossians about knowing and following the true Jesus. In their confusion, not knowing what really to believe, Paul sought to center their attention on the truth about Jesus Christ. For Paul, the Christian life was all about Jesus. And if it's not about Jesus, then the church is in trouble. Now, if you recall from last week, Paul talked about how he had suffered for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. As a humble servant, Paul shared that he was working to the point of exhaustion. He was laboring and agonizing in the ministry, but he was doing so according to the mighty power of God working in his life. This this calling to share the gospel truth about Jesus was Paul's passion. And it was also his burden. And on that note, we come to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, where Paul gets a little more personal. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face 
that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants this church in Colossae to understand the personal struggle and the conflict he is engaged in on their behalf. And also, on the behalf of the church at Laodicea. Now, where have we heard about the church in Laodicea? Ring a bell? If you remember our study through the book of Revelation some time ago, some 30 years later, Jesus had some words for this church in Laodicea through the Apostle John. Jesus told this church, You are not hot. You're not, you're not warming, you're not cleansing, and you're not cold. You're not refreshing. You are lukewarm. You are lukewarm and I will spew you out of my mouth. So what was going on at the church in Laodicea? Well, outwardly, This church, just like their wealthy and prosperous city, had become self-reliant and self-sufficient. This church had become so comfortable and so complacent that they had become unconcerned about the things of God. Unconcerned about the things of God. Yes, this church may have sounded spiritual. They may have met on Sunday to feel good about themselves, to check the box. They may have sung hymns about God. They may have professed their devotion to Him. But in reality, in reality, in the way they lived their lives day in and day out, God really did not seem to matter to them. That was the reality. And it made Jesus sick to his stomach. He wanted to vomit. That's what he means. I want I want to vomit. You see this church was rich. And their faith rested on their material wealth. 
rather than on Jesus Christ. And so they got complacent and comfortable and they became unconcerned about their real need for Jesus Christ, who is the source and the sustainer of all things. They were unconcerned. So Paul was concerned about the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea. Paul had never met them, but he agonizes over them. His heart breaks for them. And in verse 2, he shares what he wants to see for them. Knowing the false teachers posed a real threat against the church right out the gate, Paul says to these congregations that he wants to see their hearts encouraged. Filled with courage, fed by the truth, and inspired by the Holy Spirit because he understood that discouraged Christians are easy prey. Discouraged Christians are easy prey. He understood that. Paul also wanted to see them knit together in love. United, unified, and like-minded. And I think he says this because he knows these false teachers will attempt to splinter the congregation. Creating with them a divisive us-versus-them mentality. We've seen it in churches. That's what they want to do. Creating a divisive us versus them mentality which is completely contrary to the Lord's desire for His church. Jesus said, all men will know you are My disciples if, what? You have love for one another. Out there, we live in a world that attempts to divide us and splinter us, but in here, we should love and care for one another. Yes, we can have different opinions on a variety of topics, and yes, we can approach things in different ways, but no matter what, no matter what we must be united and like-minded, loving and caring for one another. Non-negotiable. The third, third thing Paul was concerned about was their full assurance of understanding. Not only that they be encouraged in the truth and loving towards one another, but their assurance, this is so important, their assurance comes by seeing God at work when we are doing these things. It's when we live these things out in our lives that we gain confidence and come to fully understand and experience God's mystery. Namely, Jesus Christ actually living in us and through us. That's the mystery. That's where the assurance comes from. Living it out and letting God work. Creating within us a settled conviction 
a settled conviction about Jesus. When you have a settled conviction as to who Jesus really is, speaking of His nature and His character, His goodness, His faithfulness, His righteousness and holiness, then you can take Him at His word. You can trust that He will care for you. You can accept that everything will be all right, even though His purposes and His plans may be difficult and may be different from your purposes and plans. And you can rest in His promises because you know that your life is truly in His hands. So everything we need, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we are told, are found in Him. The story is told that in the days of the Roman Empire, a certain wealthy senator became estranged from his son. When the senator died unexpectedly, his will was opened and read by the executor. It said, Because my son does not appreciate what I've done, I leave all my worldly possessions to my loyal slave, Marsilius. That's what it read. But there was more. Actually something for the estranged son. The will stated, Because I'm a man of grace, I bequeath to my son one of my possessions of his choosing. Just one. Sorry, said the executor to the son. You can only take one of your father's possessions. What will it be? To which the son replied, I take the slave, Marsilius. That's the idea. When you have a settled conviction as to who Jesus is, you come to realize that He is all you need. And the false claims by these teachers who suggest that Jesus is not enough seems really ridiculous. And on that note, Paul continues with verse 4, where he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul was concerned about these young churches. And rightly so, because he doesn't want to see them deluded by the enticing spiritual words and by the good persuasive Arguments these false teachers would use to basically deny that Jesus was God 
and that his sacrifice was insufficient. That's what they talked about. That was their target. Jesus is not God, and his sacrifice is not enough. That word deluded, or deceived, or beguiled, depending on your translation, literally means to reason alongside. To reason alongside. And if it helps, think about it as reasoning with words alongside the truth. Okay? Reasoning with words alongside the truth. In other words, if the target of the false teachers is the deity of Christ and His sufficiency to save, then their tactic was to present something alongside the truth that sounded and looked very much like the truth. These teachers would swoop in on new Christians, swoop in on those who didn't know any better, and they would say, you know, Jesus was good. He was a great man. And yes, he saves to a point. To a point. But you've got to do more. If you really want to get right with God, if you really want to know the deeper stuff, if you want to learn the mysteries of God that are hidden within you, and it's all about you, not God, then you need what we have to offer. It sounded good. It seemed like the truth. They spoke like church people. They seemed religious. They seemed spiritual. They claimed to be greater and holier than the apostles. But what they offered was nothing but clever and subtle lies. Lies which closely resembled the truth in an attempt to pull the believers away from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Today is no different. False teachers and preachers will use enticing words and spiritual words, and even quote Bible verses to subtly deceive you, to get something from you, usually your money. And remember, even Satan himself quoted Scripture to try to tempt Jesus. These false teachers are not going to tell you their doctrine is a lie. They are deceivers. That's who they are, and that's what they do. And what they say will often be so similar to the truth that it's dangerous. Very dangerous. So how are believers to defend themselves against these deceivers? Well, Paul 
says he knows they're hanging in there. He's supporting them in spirit because he's in, he's in confinement in Rome. And then he says, I rejoice because of your good discipline and stability. Discipline and stability. In the Greek, these are military words. Military words. And with these words, Paul was describing a military formation where each Christian was mustered in their place on the battlefield. Paul had confidence because they were standing together as a church, dug in and disciplined in the truth, lovingly like-minded, ready for battle in their minds and in their hearts, and it was together in their ranks that they would put up a solid front and stand against their attack. Since they were encouraged of heart, united in love, since they had a settled conviction about Jesus, they were holding the line against the enemy. Paul rejoiced to see them standing their ground. And beginning with verse 6, he really gets to the heart of the matter. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I think this is the whole theme of the letter. The whole theme of the entire letter and a guiding principle for Christian living. Just as we have received Christ, we are to continue to walk in Him the same way. The Colossians started with a simple piece of truth. By faith, they received the gospel summarized by a simple saying. Christ Jesus is Lord. Christ Jesus is Lord. This summarized everything that Paul has said. Jesus is Lord, and if you know that He is Lord, then you must daily walk in Him. Jesus is Lord. And that guiding principle should influence everything we are and everything we do. Jesus is Lord. So what does our walk, our life, guided by that principle, look like? Well, Paul says that as we daily move through this life, 
we are being firmly rooted and built up in faith. Firmly rooted and built up. Now, I think these two images, firmly rooted and built up, are saying the same thing, just in a different way. I think Paul just wants to make sure we get the point. First, Paul begins with an agricultural image. Agricultural. Of a tree being firmly rooted. And in the Greek, the tense of that word means once and for all having been rooted. That's what he's saying. Once and for all having been rooted. Christians are not to be tumbleweeds blown around by every wind of doctrine. Instead, we are to be deeply rooted in Christ to draw our nourishment from Him. And it's also in Him, we are also to be rooted so as to withstand the storms of life that come our way. When we placed our faith in Christ, God rooted us in Him. A spiritual connection was made with Jesus. That's what God did at the moment of our salvation. God rooted us in when we got saved. But as we spend time with Jesus, and it takes time with Jesus, we sink those Roots down deeper. That's the picture. As we spend time with Jesus, we sink those roots down deeper. This is the personal part of our walk with Christ that others typically don't see. It's intimate. It's personal. It speaks of our heart before God as we spend time alone with Him in prayer and in His Word. It's in Christ with our hearts turned toward Him, giving our undivided attention and time to Him that we find our nourishment and become stronger and more stable. Does that make sense? Are you deeply rooted in Christ? How do you know? Well, I said roots hold you down in the storm. Right? Roots hold you down in the storm. Wait for the next storm to hit your life. And whatever you are hanging on to, That's where your roots are. Whatever you're hanging on to, that's where your roots are. Secondly, to drive the the same point home, Paul uses a structural image. 
He goes from agricultural to structural to describe our spiritual progress by saying we are constantly being built up. Roots go down, right? And buildings go up. As we walk in Christ, as we move about this life with Him, as we experience His work in us and through us, we find ourselves under construction, becoming stronger and more stable. Or, as Paul says, we are being established. Established in the faith. Both the tree and the construction must be established on unshakable ground. That being Christ, who is our solid rock on which we stand by faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. And while this world around us seems to be falling apart, He is the firm foundation on which we are established. Now lastly, Paul mentions that we should be overflowing with gratitude. Now listen. If you are walking in Christ, deeply rooted in Him, under continuous construction by Him, if you are understanding what He has done for you, if you are appreciating the simplicity of Christ and His Gospel, if you are grateful and thankful, then it is evident that you are growing as a Christian and you will be hard to deceive. This is how Paul describes Walking in Christ. If our spiritual roots are deep in Christ, we will not want any other soil. If Christ is our sure foundation on which we stand, we have no need to move. If we are studying and growing in the Word, we will not be easily enticed and deceived by false doctrine. And if our hearts are overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving, we will not even consider turning from the fullness we have in Christ. A grounded, growing, grateful believer will not be easily led astray. As Paul said, Just as you have received Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up. Start with Jesus and walk with Jesus. Grow deep and grow up. So as I come to a close, I want to say this. No matter where you are, in your spiritual growth, you need to keep your spiritual roots healthy, deep, and strong. But how do you do that? Well, let me suggest a couple of things that might apply to Paul's teaching. First, every day, Every day, 
commit yourself to a personal time with Jesus. Every day. Time in prayer and time in His Word. Every day. Maybe it's just for a few minutes. I I get it. I totally get it. But be persistent until you become consistent. I know most folks like stories. We can read stories. I would suggest maybe start with the story of Joseph, beginning with Genesis chapter 37. It's a great Bible story. Read that story. And as you're reading it, ask ask God, show me something about yourself. And show me something about me. Spend some time with Him. Second, once a week, and this is important, encourage another believer. Once a week, encourage another believer. Just as Paul went out of his way to encourage other believers, you and I should do the same. You'll find out that this love and concern for others will not only strengthen others, but it will also strengthen you as well. Third, once a day, and I know this is going to be hard, think of something you are grateful for and thank God for it. Think of something you are grateful for once a day and thank God for it. Thank God for what He provides. Thank God for the people He has placed in your life. Thank Him for the deliverance of various temptations or for perseverance in your trials. Thank Him for salvation in Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. Thank Him for the big things. Thank Him for the little things. Don't let a day go by without expressing your gratitude and thanks to God. Once a day, do that. And then lastly, settle in your your heart and mind. Settle it. Settle in your heart and mind who Jesus is. Who is He? It needs to be a settled conviction as to who Jesus is. And then, step by step, step by step, just one foot in front of the other, follow Him. Let us pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. I thank You for this time. Father, I pray in in spite of me that You would use it to to bless others. Father, in spite of me, I I, I pray that it would 
lead people to change? To see you more clearly? To see themselves more clearly? Father, I pray that you would bring us to that point, just as Paul said, where we can say without hesitation, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Bring us to that place, Father, in our hearts and our minds. I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to continue that train of thought for just a moment. You know, in church, we say the word Lord a lot. It's a church word, right? We say it in here a lot. But out there, Lord, uh, the word Lord is typically not a word we hear in vocabulary. We hear it in here, but not out there. And I have to ask, what does Lord mean to you? What does that word mean to you? When you say, Jesus is my Lord, what does that really mean? What does that imply about you? If He is Lord, and He is, then what what does that say about you? Is He really your Lord? That was the problem with those folks in Laodicea. They would come to church, They would do the Christian stuff. They would use the Christian lingo. They would use the right church words. They would sing the hymns, right? They would do all that. But out there, day in and day out, they lived their lives as if God did not matter. They can say what they want in here. But out there is where the rubber meets the road. Right? Out there. That's where it gets real. Is Jesus really your Lord? And what does that mean? For me, if He is my Lord, then that implies really strongly that I am the follower. Right? He leads, I follow. 
It's His will, not mine. That's what, the, that's what it says. That's what it says. But does it show? Oh. That's a different story, isn't it? That's what it says. But does it show? Is it demonstrated in my life? That's a question only I can answer for myself. And that's a question you have to answer for yours. But I would challenge you. I would challenge you, please. Ponder, what does it mean that Jesus is my Lord? What does that really mean? Day by day, step by step, in every situation, every circumstance, He is the Lord. What does that mean? Something to think about. Anyway, thank you for being here this morning. Um, I surely do appreciate it. I told Tricia this morning, I, I got up and... and um, Felt like I had about 10 cups of coffee. Don't know why. And Trisha was experiencing the same thing. And I don't know why it either. It made us nervous. So, so, uh, so little, little unshakable right now. Anyway, I'm so glad you are here this morning. Um, maybe you're here and if you're honest, you would say, you know what? Honestly, I say it. Well, my life doesn't show it that Jesus is my Lord. If that's you, I would love to be able to talk with you and pray with you. There are there are there are some groups out there who say, who preach and teach that Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord. Yeah. Yeah. He can be your Savior, but you can live your life the way you want. That's false teaching. If you can honestly say Jesus is not your Lord then I'm going to tell you, you're probably not saved. It's a package deal. I would love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. You just need prayer. You want somebody to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. However the Lord leads you, I just pray you respond to Him in obedience. That's all I ask. He is the Lord. Larry? Yeah, please. Oh, Lord.